You are now listening to Portionality Podcast, a podcast dedicated to faith, culture, and that roller coaster we like to call adulting. I am your host, Portia D. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Portionality Podcast. I am your host, Portia D. Williams, Portia D. as y'all call me. And I'm here with another great episode for you. Today, I have a guest who I will introduce momentarily, but I want you to know that we are chatting it up about the State of the Union Address that took place on January 30th, 2018. And so the State of the Union Address is the formal address, for those who may not know, It's the formal address of the current president of the United States at the Capitol before the members of Congress, the Speaker of the House, and the Vice President. And this address can include updates on health care, immigration, taxes, jobs, the environment, crime, the military, and foreign relations, just to name a few. And today, in tension with the State of the Union and the state of the church, where do we as believers stand in the middle of all of this? What is our charge? What is our role and responsibility? And there's no way I want to have that conversation alone. And so without further ado, I want to introduce you to my guest today, Alan Reynolds. And so Alan Reynolds is the lead servant of the Remnant Millennial Ministry at Valley Kingdom Ministries International in the Chicagoland area. The Remnant endeavors to build relationships to build the kingdom of God. He is also the editor for adult and denominational content at Urban Ministries Incorporated. He oversees production of commentary and adult Christian education resources for thousands of churches UMI reaches each year. He has worked in a variety of ministry in other settings, including hospital, nonprofit, small and large churches, campus ministry, and children and youth ministry since the age of 12. Alan is passionate about leadership development, theology, and performing arts, but most of all, loving God and teaching people. Alan holds a BA from Howard University in media production and business and a Master of Divinity from Yale University. And without further ado, we welcome our guest of today, Mr. Alan Reynolds. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the Portionality Podcast. Yes, Alan. I'm so glad you're here. And so when I was, you know, meditating and thinking about who would be an awesome conversation partner to engage in this dialogue, you know, the Holy Ghost definitely gave me the name of Alan. And I'm like, absolutely. So, <laughs> so Alan, I'm so glad. I appreciate so glad. Holy Ghost reference. Yes. <laughs> I'm so excited. And so, Alan, um, let's just jump right into it. And so with last night's uh, conversation and dialogue, we see that President 45 is convinced that we are in a time of renewed American patriotism, leaning into his campaign of make America great again. He believes that the country's motto in God we trust should remain at the center of American life. However, he pushes the idea of neoliberalism, and I will give you an exact quote, and 
he says, this is our new American moment. There has never been a better time to start living the American dream. So to every citizen watching at home tonight, no matter where you have been, or where you come from, this is your time. If you work hard, if you believe in yourself, if you believe in America, then you can dream anything, you can be anything, and together we can achieve anything. Tonight, I want to talk about what kind of future we are going to have and what kind of nation we are going to be, all of us together as one team, one people, one American family. We are We all share the same home, the same heart, the same destiny, and the same great American flag. Together, we are rediscovering the American way. In America, we know that our faith and family, not government and bureaucracy, are at the center of American life. Our motto is, in God we trust. And so, Alan, what is your response to this notion, and how is this line of thinking dangerous and false? One of the interesting things, you reading that quotation and, and me thinking about it and actually thinking about previous states of the union, which most people kind of have pushed out of their minds, um, is that this line of thinking is certainly not new for uh, people who are conservatives politically, and it's actually not new for people who are liberals politically, um, especially when we hear state of the unions, that um, the idea that America itself is pushed as the great answer for all things and is the great project that people can um, be part of, um, that that American dream mentality, it, it has permeated the discourse for decades, right? And so President 45 is not doing anything new in that regard in saying that this is the greatest time to be an American. You can achieve the American dream, Um But what's interesting about that um, for people who profess to be Christians is that the American dream and the idea that America is going to be uh, the thing that saves us is in of itself problematic, right? We've created the American idol, uh, literally. (laughs) And um, one of the things that a lot of people don't know, even uh, I got to to live in Washington, D.C. for four years and visit the Capitol building. And that room, that very chamber that uh, the president gave his State of the Union in is built as a temple to liberty. There is literally a statue, not of liberty, it's called the the Statue of Freedom um, that represents the Union that sits in the lobby of the Capitol building. And uh, there's an inscription above that statue that says this is the temple of liberty. Um, And the thing is, the American project for so long, even leading up to to the State of the Union last night, has pushed this idea that if we try hard enough, if we work hard enough, right, that neoliberal impulse that you can do it, you can be it, you can make it. Um, But the thing is, if, if, if we profess to be Christians, right, Because when President uh, 45 says that uh, we hold our faith, he's not talking about uh, Islam. He's not talking about Buddhism. He's not talking about Hinduism. He's talking about Christianity. And he professes to be a Christian. 
and yet there's no notion of grace at all. There's no notion of a concern for those who don't have. There's no notion of a concern for humility. And then there's no recognition of human frailty, of human limitations, and of the need for God to intervene in order for us to be successful, right? And so I think that um, one of the things that... His administration, in practical terms, has done a lot worse job doing uh, than some other administrations, is acknowledging the realities and the complexities of American lives, right? So if I'm a person of color, if I'm a woman, if I'm a member of an immigrant community, it doesn't really matter how hard I work if I, go, if I have to fear get de- getting deported, right? It doesn't matter how smart I am if... Uh, you know, if my brother was shot last week, so I can't concentrate in class, right? It doesn't really matter if I come from poverty, if I work real hard and know that there are predatory police officers on my block. So those, those complexities, those realities aren't acknowledged in a neoliberal narrative. And in his framing of what the American dream is and worshiping the idol of America As Christians, we have to remember human frailty, right? We have to remember the complexities that we are living in sin, right? That sin permeates everything that has to do with our world. And so that that causes us to need God's intervention, right? That causes us to need the intervention of others. That causes us, when we do have places of privilege and power, to use those to help the least of these. But the American dream... Um, doesn't allow space for that, even though it professes to be built on that. And certainly you get that coming through in uh, what what President 45 says last night. Mm, yeah, you are so on it, Alan. I'm telling you, like this, this is rich already. <laughs> and it, it's really dangerous. And President 45 is in a space where we really all need to kind of wake up and pay attention to. And so particularly as it pertains to black and brown bodies. And so, which brings me to my next question and he brings up immigration and crime in ways that I think is a war on black bodies. And notice this, he says, For decades, this is on immigration, for decades, open borders have allowed drugs and gangs to pour into our most vulnerable communities. They have allowed millions of low-wage workers to compete for jobs and wages against the poorest Americans. Most tragically, they have caused the loss of many innocent lives. He also goes on to speak on these four pillars of the immigration reform plan, which I don't actually think is beneficial to anyone. So he says the first pillar of our framework generously offers a path to citizenship for 1.8 million illegal immigrants who were brought here by their parents at a young age. But this is under our plan, those who meet education and work requirements and show good moral character will become will be able to become full citizens of the United States. Okay, so that shows privilege. You have to have education and work requirements and moral standing and moral character. Second pillar says fully secure the border. Okay, Alan, all right, fully secure the border. We all know about that wall. That means building a wall on the southern border. 
Crucially, our plan closes the terrible loopholes exploited by criminals and terrorists to enter our country. He's mostly um, particularly talking about Mexico at this point. And he also goes on to say that the third pillar ends visa lottery. And it's a program that randomly hands out green cards without any regard for skill, merit, or safety of our people. And then the fourth pillar protects the nuclear family by ending chain migration. And so chain migration is where other persons, if you're related to someone else, you can also come into the country. But he's limiting that to just spouses and small children. And so he's also saying that with this opioid crisis, so he's bringing in a lot of different things to uh, declare war on black and brown bodies. He says, we must get much tougher on drug dealers and pushers if we're going to succeed in stopping this scourge. So I'm just like, wow. So he explicitly tied the crime to immigration, declared war on black and brown bodies without even saying it, and basically gave an okay for a new form of slavery in the prison industrial system. So given the fact that we are followers of Jesus specifically, right, how do we respond to this as followers of Jesus? And come on, Alan, tell these people who Jesus is in this response. Uh, I mean, Jesus, don't get me started on Jesus because I could go on and on. There's, there's a, you know, uh, something, in, you know, that Baptist gospel charismatic non-denominational, you know, uh, UCC folk who were, who were in me would just come out with a lot of stuff. But I, I just want to highlight a couple of things just in that immigration plan, uh, that are particularly dangerous. Right. Um, when it comes to trying to do governance and without having too much of a side, this is a point that I find really important for us to understand as Christians in our interactions with politics and governance is that God never intended the church to be the state. Uh, There was not uh, Jesus institutes a kingdom of heaven, Mm -hmm. but the kingdom is not of this world. That's right. There's there the the idea is never that the two are synonymous because we aren't Christ, right? Only He can govern His church, and the church is supposed to impact the nations, not be the nations. Um, we are not supposed to try to legislate righteousness, right? That's the problem of what happens in the Old Testament. They try to legislate righteousness. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, he has this problem with the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests who actually controlled um, what was going on, as well as the Herodian uh, dynasty and, and, and all of the governors of the Roman empires that they tried to legislate righteousness, which means pass legislation or put place put in place laws that are going to make people good. But it ties back to this point that we are sinful. Right. Humanity, which is a really Protestant uh, framework. Right. In the Catholic framework, we are also sinful, but our sin doesn't mar our our divinity quite as badly. Um, But we can't act like telling people to do good things is going to make them do them. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, we wouldn't have laws if everybody just did the right thing. Right. And the fact that there are crimes means that. Me passing another law about crime is not going to make crime go away. You know, it's, it's just going to 
try to threaten or try to punish people when they do do wrong. When, when people do the wrong thing, a law tries to threaten them with punishment or to punish them once they do something wrong. But that's not going to make us good people. You know, it will scare some people away. But the people who are really doing the wrong thing in the first place, they're not scared away by laws. Uh, but anyway, so in, in Trump's first point on immigration, he, he talks about educational work and moral character requirements. Now, that last clause is what's really scary mm -hmm. because we have no idea what the implication of that is. Right. We've seen what the Department uh, of Justice has done under Attorney General Sessions. Right. And under this administration in terms of feeling like they're cleaning up the streets, like they're uh, putting more money. Uh, it reminds you of, you know, the turn of the, the 80s into the 90s with the riots in L.A. with the police, you know, uh, police militarization um, all across the country. Uh, that we got to see and hear in in, in NWA and and uh, in West Coast rap, uh, you know, the F the police, that kind. It, it's that that kind of militarization in order to stop crime and to reignite this war on drugs um, that treats some people, right, white people who are victims of the opioid ec epidemic, differently than people in black communities. And, and then there's this false reality that he paints as well that the problem in inner cities, the problem uh, with communities who are poor is that there are immigrants killing people, right? Immigrants bringing in drugs. And we know that that's just false, right? Most of these communities he's talking about are filled with black and brown people who have been there for generations, you know? Uh, I think about my own home city in, in Chicago. I grew up in the suburbs here. And to go to Chicago, we're talking about generations of segregation, of neglect, of poverty, uh, and then uh, people not paying attention to the politics here, political corruption, exploitation of these populations that has caused such a violent climate. And that has nothing to do with who's coming in from outside at all. You know, as a matter of fact, we know if we even get to talk about violence in this country, that every mass murder, every mass murder in this country, and they've increased over the past decade more than any other time in American history, have been by straight white men. Mm hmm. You know, but that's nothing to address. Instead, we're afraid of an artificial fictional boogeyman who is this black and brown person, you know, it, 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 it's, 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 it's crazy. I mean, but that's, that's the narrative that he's selling. And so then, um, as we continue on down that line of thinking, what do we have to do as followers of Jesus? We have to recognize that the state is not the church. One, we have to, uh, be persistent. I wrote an article some time ago uh, for Urban Faith um, online about what can we do in the midst of this, and it was actually in response to, to police brutality, but it applies here as well, is we have to be persistent, right? There's this parable in Matthew of a persistent widow and an unjust judge, and the judge doesn't care about people and he doesn't care about God. 
but he gives the widow justice not because she's right but because she's persistent and what jesus says after it at the end of that parable he says if this woman was able to get justice because of her persistence how much more will your father in heaven answer the prayers of those who cry out day and night Right. And and we have a responsibility not just to pray, to cry out to God, to be persistent in prayer. And prayer does change things. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of too many people to think that it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But we also have to cry out to our political leaders. A lot of people don't even understand how our politics work. Um, You know, if you would write one letter to your local local representatives, You have no idea what a change that can make. Right. You have because the way that the politicians work is they're going based on the evidence that they have in their hands. If they're all 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 the letters, all of the input that they're getting in terms of policymaking is coming from lobbyists, is coming from big banks, is coming from the wealthy, is coming from, you know, People who don't care about the poor, don't care about black and brown bodies, don't care about women, don't care about immigrants. If, if that's where they're hearing the most feedback, those are the policies that they have in their hands to act on. But if people who believe in Jesus and know that Jesus cares about the poor, right? Jesus is a homeless person walking around in first century Palestine under Roman occupation. If we follow that Jesus... If we know that Jesus says that he cares for the poor, right, that he gives the parable in Matthew 25, that if you've done this to the least of these, if you visited the prisoner, if you cared about the widow and the orphan and the hungry and the the, the naked, if, if that's our Jesus and we care about that, we have to express that care to our elected officials so that they have something in their hands because it will sway their minds. If they have a letter that they can take to a, a local meeting, that matters more than you talking to your friends on Facebook because they'll never hear that and and it won't come out in policy making decisions and then so then the other thing we have to do in our churches is just be aware right we can't we can't hide our heads in the sand anymore and think that 45's administration is just going to go away right we have to do what so many courageous people are doing and and holding on to our sanctuary status Mm. right caring about those who are going to be victims of these mass deportations that the president's trying to put up. He's talking about protecting 1.8 million people and having the best and the brightest kept. There are over 11 million illegal immigrants that we think are here. Right? So what happens to those other 7 million people? You know, Jesus cares about them, too. And, and we have to stand in the gap and intercede, not only in policy, but in standing with and being with people, just like when Jesus came, it's not as though uh, the woman who committed adultery was wasn't wrong. She was wrong. But Jesus says he who was at without sin cast the first stone. Because God desires mercy more than sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Amen. Wow, Alan, this is so rich. Uh, you know, that is so, so rich. I'm, I'm so serious. And it just makes me wonder, you know, if we as the church, how have we, one, not done our role? Or even how have we 
you know, how even we played ourselves a little bit, right? And thinking about Obama being this presidential messiah for our nation and how we just kind of fell off of our game. We as a church, particularly the black church, if I'm going to get real specific, right? I mean, there's the church universal and then there's the black church. And, you know, the black church is interdenominational in itself. And thinking about how we kind of gave up on the fight in terms of what we thought maybe the battle was over or that we might have won a war. We knew that we had some, you know, small things here and there. We knew that there was some things of justice that we still needed to be on the front lines of, but we didn't really think of it as a racial issue as much as we do now. And so we're seeing a lot of scary race things coming up in the State of the Union address. And so do you think that we played ourselves in thinking that Obama was this presidential messiah for our nation and how did we fall or rise in our responsibilities as the church during the Obama era and what do you think we need to do better about in this current administration I think that to to answer your question directly like yes many people did trust too much that President Obama was going to be a messiah figure Um, But going back to my earlier point, that's just a continuation of the neoliberal agenda. It's just a continuation of the false American dream that we've always that we've been sold in this country for, you know, about about seventy or eighty years, right? Um, That if you work hard and you know try your best and are a good person, whatever that means, that things will work out for you here, right? And that. America is our God, right? We worship freedom and liberty. We worship the ability to make choices. We worship the, we, we believe that we can all have the pursuit of happiness and that we have it the same way. And for a lot of people, when we saw President Obama be elected, get into that position, we thought even more, we bought more into that reality, which is really not, it's not really a core Christian reality. Um, Jesus was never about trying to, again, make the state God, right? Jesus was not trying to uh, allow people to be the most free, right? Jesus's freedom looks different than Roman freedom, right? Roman freedom looks like the ability to worship the gods that you want, to make the money you want, to have sex with who you want, when you want to, to buy and trade slaves, to be able to be part of the upper class, to have a nice title, to call yourself a Roman citizen. Like, that's what Roman freedom looks like. That's what the freedom of empire looks like. And American freedom looks a lot like Roman freedom. We think that we're free because we have the ability to make bad choices. Whereas God's freedom looks like the ability to recognize that choices are bad. Well. Right. It's God's freedom looks like the ability to say, you know, let me care about someone else as well. And also not just want for them uh, to profess Jesus as their ultimate goal, but also to be well in their bodies and in their communities and in their ability to have provision because all of God's people, right, all of creation deserves that. Um, and so, yeah, like we bought into a false narrative that Obama could be 
a messiah figure, but that's not new. Like, that's not new in America. Um, what we need to do now in light of that and what this presidency has reminded us, and it, it is taking root across the nation, is that the church has a place to be the church, but the church also can't be the government, right? Mm. We have to influence the nation, though. You know, we, we cannot take responsibility for the general welfare of the poor, right, which is what is getting ready. I mean, even talking to some of my conservative um, co-workers and so forth, like they really believe like this is an opportunity for the church to step up and take care of the poor. And, you know, um, there was this video that came out a while back with uh, T.D. Jakes, and he was like doing the math with Paula White. And Father Flager, like, it is impossible for the church to take care of all of the poor in this nation. Like, we can't even feed all the hungry children. There just isn't enough money, right? That's why we have governments. And so uh, there's a, um, something that I, I learned from one of my, uh, one of my leaders, uh, even in my corporation, that the church, what we're called to be and called to do, is to influence the nations, right? We, we need to recognize that, especially in this country, we're like Joseph's and Daniel's. We can influence Babylon so that they send resources to Israel, which are our people who are living in our communities, right? Our job is to be in the room recognizing that with one stroke of a pen, President 45 can change the fortunes of the people in the hood. So you, you, you don't have time to try to worry about your, uh, your moral untouchedness, right? We liked President Obama, even though President Obama was still playing out this liberal American dream, right? So just because it's the same, it's the same narrative, so we can't get mad because President Trump is the wrong person doing it. We still have the same job as the church, which is to be concerned about the kingdom, to be hope, to be light in our communities, to care about the least of these, and to make sure that we're influencing our governments in ways that, that feed back into our communities, not just to, to wait and outlast the president, right? He, he, he got three more years until he get, you know, unless he gets impeached, and it's not in the interest of the Republican Party to do that. And I want people to, to recognize that as well. People who are waiting on the president to be impeached, impeachment happens in Congress, and the Republican Congress is not going to impeach him. It's not in their best interest. So regardless of whatever crime, whatever thing he said, what, however big of a fool he makes himself look, until they decide that it's in their interest to impeach him, he's going to be the president. So for the next three years, we need to be about the work of being light and hope in our communities, taking care of our people, inspiring them, you know, meeting the needs and also influencing our local governments, our local systems, our local businesses so that they operate in righteous ways, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. And I absolutely agree with you, Alan. And 
And honestly, I think that impeaching him would not be in the best interest of the people. And for the simple fact that we have a vice president um, by the name of MP and MP, in my opinion, is far more dangerous than what we already have, you know, because the only thing scarier than a, a a horrible fake politician is a real horrible politician. And I think my uh, MP is a little bit more uh, dangerous and more of a bomb than what we already have in office. And so I don't think impeaching him is in the best interest of anybody. And so you kind of hinted on this a little bit and um, in terms of what conversation should we be having in the church and what should we be concerned with as people of faith and what is the work that we should engage in and how do we become more kingdom minded about doing that work? Could you be a little bit more specific and and expound upon that? So I'm going to be real spiritual in this answer. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because I really care. I really care about the church. And one of the things that I see is a temptation and actually a downfall, especially of a lot of black churches in our moment who are trying to, a lot of them trying to figure out how do they explain their Christianity in light of an evangelical conservative majority that not only voted for, elected, but still continues to promote the bigotry and violence and disregard for human lives and the value of others that 45 does and figuring out how can I be Christian and he be Christian, right? Um, But on the other side, we have our... uh, black churches that feel like they're more liberal and you know they're gonna be more progressive and and we've been railing on 45 since he got elected and you know we you know feel this sense of righteousness you know look at hey you know we weren't with that majority of folks who bought into the trap that you know two issues are what define our christianity and politics um that just because you're able to read the news And call bad, bad, and call good, good does not make you prophetic. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Being prophetic means that you're able to hear and declare what God is saying. And I think that in a lot of ways, we've reached a dangerous place where people conflate reporting the news with being prophetic. Um, Today... Um, In our devotion at my company, we were reading James 2, and uh, it's the faith without works is dead, Mm -hmm. Um, that that passage. And James's whole framework is if you see somebody who who is poor, right, you see someone who's in need, who's hungry and uh, on on the street and, and you pass them and say, you know, I pray that you would be filled and that you would be clothed and continue walking on then your faith is worth nothing, right? Because, but that's what we do a lot of times in our churches. We see needs in our community. We, as Christians, we see needs of other people and we're like, I'm going to pray for you. Hmm. And if the person needs a meal, a prayer for them is not feeding them, Mm -hmm. right? So we have to be about that as individuals, and as church communities, right? So that's that's thing one. But then two, we have to be actually prophetic, which means we have to actually take time and listen to what God is saying. Um, and that's not easy. It's not something that I can get from 
watching the news, right? It's not something, uh, it, it takes real spiritual discipline. It takes time in prayer where you're listening. It takes time actually studying and reading the word of God, you know, reading our scriptures. It takes time paying attention to other Christians who aren't at your church. Hmm. Because if Holy Spirit is really speaking, he's speaking to the church. He's not just speaking to your church. Come on now. And so we have to care about those things if we're really going to be the church. And then the other thing is if we're going to be kingdom minded, we have to be more concerned about what God wants to do in our region. Right. In our community, in our nation, than we than we are with what God is doing in my church service. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it means are we comfortable with Jesus's parable of the good Samaritan for real? Right. Which means that if I see somebody who don't believe in Jesus, who don't believe like I do, that I want them healed and well, even if they don't get salvation. Come on now. That if the kingdom of heaven is really like a seed that when it's planted and it makes itself full grown, then it's branches are enough for all of the birds of air to come to rest in and that they'll be nourished by, which means that our churches, if the kingdom of God is planted in our churches, that that, that it becomes so big and has such an impact that everything around it is blessed, whether they ever come into the church. So we have to really begin to think in those, in those terms in this moment. We have, but, but it takes discernment. It takes Knowing what God is saying. And so let me give you an example. My church is in a community now where we didn't expect to be ourselves. Mostly black congregation, mostly white community. Right. And a lot of churches are finding themselves in the opposite situations. These white congregations with parishioners, black, you know, all that kind of thing. And we are being forced to reckon with a different reality. When our when our church was in a black community, then. Our focus was on job trainings and, you know, food pantry and, you know, uh, you know, that educate, you know, educate. We're going to do that. We're going to educate. We're going to be culturally minded. But you have to be sensitive to where your church is. It exists in space and time on a piece of land if it has a building. And if it doesn't, your church exists in a community and you have to care about that community's needs. Right. This is how we often get thrown off, because most of the stuff that affects us politically happens at the local and state levels. And all of us get so caught up in the presidential elections that we miss all of the stuff that's happening. Judges, you know, what's determined to be a crime, how police are trained. You know, what sorts of job programs there are, what kinds of feeding programs, education, you know, um, access to health care. All that stuff is decided at the state level and the local level, not by the president. So we have to care about those things if we want to make a kingdom impact and then discern what God is saying about those things. So back to my community, because I'm living in a white neighborhood the need is not for job training programs. Everybody got a job. The need is not for food programs or cultural education. Right? They're different than us. The need is for economic development, mentoring programs for youth, 
you know, professional development, which means I have to think differently about how I even approach that community. Mm -hmm. And so I have to care more about what the community needs and what God is trying to do to make them whole, right? Um, Mental health programs, you know, which we never, you know, so many churches don't even think about. If that's what your community needs, that's what they need. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't be so caught up on having the church fundraiser uh, or or on the flip side. We can't be caught up with having the big the, the big fair where we hand out hot dogs and, and juices. If that's not what the, if that's not what the community needs. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I'm with you on that. And I think that it's so important for us to be discerning and watching and putting our ears literally to the ground to hear how the spirit is talking to our particular churches in our particular context. And so like for my church, which is in Newark, New Jersey, and then my former church was in Bridgeport, Connecticut. So thinking about how I'm specifically in these very urban, you know, the hood context, right? And so the need of the decriminalization of marijuana in the community so that our black and brown boys and teenagers aren't just going to jail at rapid rates, right? So that's something, that's a real conversation that we're trying to have. Or uh, conversations around immigration because we have a high a Latino population here and we, and, and, you know, these, these conversations and thinking about what does the community need? And sometimes the church can be so, so self-serving. And I mean, the church, not in the, in the literal sense of what the church is, but I mean, the church as in the people who just come in because they want to get their worship and their gold stars on Sunday, they want to be so self-serving that they forget that they're in this community and that we are called to serve and not just be served on Sunday. You know, we are called to go out into the community. We worship and worship is so important. Alan, you know, I love me some worship. You know, worship is, is, is so important and we need worship that we might continue to sustain ourselves to do the work. But worship is not all of why we come to church. Worship is not all of why we are believers. It is so important. That's why I think it's so necessary for us to have our devotional lives in this particular season. I think it if we don't have a prayer life, we need to get one. If you don't fast, you ought to get a prayer buddy and start because this work is so taxing and it can be depleting. It doesn't matter what context you're in. Ministry can be very depleting. And so we all have a place in this. It doesn't matter if you're ordained or if you're just the lay leader. We all have a place in this work, but we need to have our ears to the ground and hearing how the spirit is calling us to engage in the work during this time. And it looks different for everybody. Not everybody has to be down at the front line with a sign protesting. Some people might need to be at the church to receive those who need prayer and who need services. But the point is, we all have a place in this movement. But whatever your post is, you need to be on guard. You need to be the watchman or the watchwoman at whatever gate that you're being assigned to. Um, And so in the time that we have left, Alan, I have one more question. And it's about hope, the good news. And sometimes we don't always have good news in every situation, but I do think that there is some sort of hope. If we are people of the resurrection, if we are people who believe in Jesus Christ, there's got to be some point of
of hope somewhere. And hope doesn't always have to be beautiful. It doesn't have to have to be cleaned off and pretty and shiny for us to put up in some, you know, curio cabinet case. But what do we say and what do we make of hope in this political climate? Our hope has to be in Christ alone, right? In, in who Jesus is and who God is. Um, and the thing that a lot of people get caught up on, especially when we know a lot, and the more you know, um, as James Baldwin says, to be, you know, a Negro and to be relatively conscious is to be in a constant state of rage. Yes. Right? The the burden of W.E.B. Du Bois and his knowing knowing as much as he knew and, and how that, that warped his soul, how that damaged his psyche. Um and also recognizing that that's not the case for the majority of African-Americans in this country. They're not uh, filled with great education formally, right? We're not stupid, though, but our minds are on different things. Um, that we have to hope in who Jesus is and recognize that my hope is for the day that I'm in. It's not for some grand realization of the American dream with a different president. Right. Mm -hmm. If we buy into the idea that happiness for me looks like being able to get my house and my car and my two and a half children and my perfect marriage and, you know, working real hard and working my way to the top in my business or, you know, my ministry or having the most followers on Instagram or Facebook, then we'll miss it, too. Mm -hmm. You know, but if my hope is in. God's love for me and my ability to love the person next to me, that we have opportunity to do in a new way every day. Yeah. You know, and and as we do that in those little ways every day, it ends up making the big difference. You know, uh, there's a story um, of uh, uh, an executive and it's a story that I've told often. It's a story my CEO told me that has just changed my life, really. Um, and he went to an executive retreat. And one of the executives is a vice president of Coca-Cola in Africa. Right. Huge amount of influence. And that vice president is a Christian, you know, goes to church. And one Sunday he went to church and he heard a sermon from his pastor about how Jesus cared for the poor, right? And it really impacted him. And so he had to have a conversation with his pastors. And again, this is where we'll miss it, especially if we're in ministry. We cannot be so concerned for the least of these that we forget the people who have power and privilege, hmm. mm-hmm. which is another trap. Um, they, because he's able to have this conversation with his pastor about how the sermon impacted him, he went back to his job, vice president of Coca-Cola in Africa, and just decided, you know, uh, based on what he had heard, that he would give dental care to his employees. Do you know that that raised the standard of living and the health outcomes for thousands of people working in those plants across Africa because one person heard a sermon? Wow. And we have that power. That's, that's kingdom, right? It wasn't he was able to do with one decision what 
hundreds of churches in that same region have been trying to do for 40 years. Right. And we have to be aware of that reality because we're in America, the most powerful nation in the world, where we have the most wealth, you know, in the midst of everything that's going on, that your ability to be a carrier of hope in your community could make the difference for somebody, whether that is the homeless person who just needed a meal that day or it's the CEO waiting to hear a different perspective that's going to change the lives of millions. Mm. You know, and, and we have we have to live with that kind of love and compassion so that regardless of who we encounter, because we don't know who we are encountering, that we're able to make those sorts of changes and we're able to impact people's lives in those ways. And yes, like things are bad politically, but that's not new. Something struck me and I, I, I share this story as well pretty often when I went to Rome and got to visit uh, the catacombs of the Roman martyrs, there are thousands of graves underground in these catacombs, and all of them are open, right? Uh, they are kind of like we would build a mausoleum today in a graveyard. And that was the first time that that kind of structure had ever been used to bury people. It was Christians who were being crucified, burned, and persecuted under the Roman government in the first three centuries, right, after Christ. They believed that their bodies would rise, which is why they built their graves open. They believed that they were going to get up, that Jesus was going to return, and that they would rise. And it caused them to die believing that they would live. Wow. And so Jesus doesn't say when he comes to earth, let me make the world great now. Let's make the world great again. Let's make Israel great again. Jesus also doesn't say when he comes to earth and he had the power to do it, let me heal every sick person. Right? He could have done that in an instant and didn't do it. So why not? Why not? And it has to be because Jesus is not concerned with us reaching the end goal like a lot of us are. He's not concerned about us trying to get to the perfect world where there's no poverty. He's not concerned about us trying to make sure everybody is well all the time. He's not concerned about making sure that everybody can be a citizen of the United States. What he's concerned about is how we love God today and how we treat each other today in ways that demonstrates who he is and that there is life in the midst of death all around us, that there is hope in the midst of political turmoil and that we will rise again. We will rise again because we believe that he rose. My God, that is so good, Alan. Oh, my goodness. As you were speaking, I just could not help but think of 
the hymn that says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Oh my gosh, Alan, that is so, 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 so rich. Our hope is built on Jesus. And so I thank you, Alan, just for sharing with us in these times. As uh, President 45 has said some crazy stuff But we can still have hope in Jesus We can still have hope in the Lord And so I encourage everyone If you have the strength, if you have the capacity in your spirit to go and look When you uh, have a chance to look at the transcript of the um, State of the Union address, I say take a look at it because some things we do need to know about. I understand that some of us didn't engage it for self-care purposes, and that's real. Uh, that's very real, and I do think we need to be very mindful and protective of our own self-care, but I also think that we need to be mindful of what's happening as well because the worst thing <laughs> is, for, is for these things to be happening right up under our feet, and we didn't know because we didn't read or because we didn't pay attention or because we didn't listen or we didn't see it. And we've had enough things uh, done to us as a people, black people and brown people, as much has, has been done to us because we didn't seek the information or because we didn't have an opportunity to have access to the information. That's exactly what I want to say. We didn't have access to the information. And so now we have the access to uh, get this information of what's happening. And so I think we need to engage it in the way that we can. And so, um, Alan, are there any final thoughts that that you want to share? Absolutely. Just as you were saying that, I got to go to, you know, I got to shout out Howard. I got to go to the installation of the new school of Howard, the new divinity school at Howard, uh, Dean Dr. Yolanda Pierce. And uh, Dr. Melissa, Melissa Harris Perry was speaking. And I did not know until that speech that she was a Unitarian Universalist. Really? Um, yeah. Um, wow. But for her, she had come to faith in Jesus because as a sociologist, and this is what she said, as a sociologist who studies people, who studies, you know, these trends, who, you know, there's a, a sort of certain kind of pessimism built into analyzing that data and being in that field. She said she could not make sense of how black people in this country could continue to go on despite slavery, despite the antebellum, despite what happened in the Civil War, despite reconstruction and failed reconstruction, Jim Crow. She could not understand how black people under Jim Crow could be at separate water fountains, could be beaten in the streets and and continue to go on and continue to hope for a better future for their children. That for her to be a black woman and to believe that there would be a better tomorrow for her little girl does not make sense sociologically. There was nothing in the experience of the slaves or those who lived through the civil rights movement or those who have lived through the Black Lives Matter movement and police brutality, there is no reason why we should believe that things will be better for our kids than they will be for us, because the data says the opposite. 
But the fact that they did, they did hold on to that belief. And the fact that the lives of children today are better than they were in 1900. Hmm. And the, the thing that sustained them to see those days out of slavery was faith in this Jesus was all that she needed to know. Mm. And so I encourage us again in this moment, our predecessors, our forefathers, our ancestors lived through Andrew Jackson, Mm. Andrew Johnson. They lived through Woodrow Wilson. They lived through Truman back and forth. They lived through LBJ and the Civil Rights Act. And at the same time, he's not supporting us. They lived through that. They lived through Reaganomics. They lived through the war on drugs with Nixon. And they still hoped for a better future for us. Mm -hmm. And we are living in a better future. So we have to hope that the future will be better for our children and not be so caught up in the pain we're experiencing now that we cease to work for a better future for our children, knowing that they will still have suffering, but that their days can be better than ours. Mm, yes, Alan. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, all this good stuff. And so, Alan, how can the people reach you if they ever want to reach out to you for a question or want to hear more about your work? You can find me. I'm real accessible on Facebook. Alan Reynolds is my name on Facebook. It's really me. Uh, you can get me on Instagram at Holy Allen Gory. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Holy Allen Gory. I don't really use it as much, but feel free to hit me up. Follow me. Uh, I post. I share. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Alan. It's such a great, 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 great time. It's always a good time talking to you. And I appreciate you just being here rocking with us. And so y'all go and look up Alan, reach out to him. He says he's accessible. And so do it. You know, he's making it available. And Alan's a great person to just bounce some ideas off and also follow the young adult ministry that's going on at uh, Valley Kingdom Ministries with the remnant. Yeah. So go check out remnant as well uh, for all of our young adult listeners. All right, y'all. It's been real. Catch you on the next one. Thanks so much for joining me on another episode of Portionality Podcast. Can't wait to hear from you when you email me directly at portionality at gmail.com with your topics and with your listener questions. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Portionality. And as always, peace, light, and love, and namaste to you.